0: That song perfectly depicts the passage we're going to be in today. But uh, again, please remember that I, by declaration, am making Easter last four weeks. One week is not enough. I have declared it to be so. It is the law of Jim DeMoller. And so uh, we understand that, and when we come to Easter, we say the Lord is risen, and you say, yes, and he is risen indeed, but we also understand that we live in a culture that only allows uh, Easter one one measly Sunday. That's all we get. And 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 you know it it's the secular world says you can have Sunday but you can't have the week before. You know, people got to go to work. Well, because we mix both, you know, the risen Lord and, and a secular culture, if you are a young person it might get a bit confusing and we found this wonderful uh, summary of how confusing Easter can be for little kids. So let's look at this, and it's in Scottish, so there's subtitles. I think you know what I mean when you hear the people speak, okay? Let's watch this.
1: Dad, are you painting a face on an egg? Yes, I am. Have you lost your mind? No, it's for Easter. Ugh, Easter. Right, okay. What's wrong with Easter now? I just don't understand what it's all about. Why do you give me chocolate? How do you mean? When I ask for chocolate, Mum says, no, 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 not good for you. Sometimes you give me more chocolate, what I can eat. Like where? Easter. Easter, Halloween, Christmas, my birthday. Okay, okay. The country is gripped by obesity. our celebrations have loads of chocolate. (laughs) I suppose you're right. I don't get the characters, either. What characters? The Easter characters. We learned all about Easter at nursery. Yeah? Our Easter bunny and Jesus' best pals? Well, not really. Is Easter Bunny in the Bible? Does do he carry a basket of eggs all the time? Well, the thing is, he's not really in the... Does Jesus totally love chocolate then? Well, the thing is, Easter Bunny's not really in the Bible. What do you think Jesus' favourite chocolate is? Eh, uh, I don't I don't think he had a favourite. My favourite's Puttons. Listen, Isla, lots of people believe lots of different things, but the most important thing is that we have fun together. You know? I really don't get. it. What's that? Bunnies don't even lay eggs.
0: You just had to see that. It was it was precious. I love it. Um, <clears throat> let me say it again. The Lord is risen. Is risen indeed. This morning we worship a risen Lord. And it means that because he has risen, we can trust those things that are written about him by the eyewitnesses who were there and shared those same experiences with Jesus. Uh, From the very first line of the Gospel of Mark, which we are studying, uh, we learn that he claims to be, and the writer of Mark claims, that he is the Son of God. Uh, And so the next 16 chapters in this Gospel of Mark that we are studying... We have word after word of what Jesus was saying to prove that he's the son of God. We have miracle after miracle and experience after after experience. And they're all designed to convince us that that title son of God is correct for this Jesus. So we have spent a series of weeks that I've been teaching looking at what Jesus says. His parables of the kingdom of God and the arguments that he has with the religious leaders of his nation. And before that, we were looking at some of his decisions based on the Son of God's core values. In other words, what was his mission in coming to earth? And we looked at a few of what we call minor miracles, okay, minor, uh, probably five on a scale of 10. But now we are entering this phase of what I call big time miracles, back to back to back. To back, and that's four. To back, there are five miracles that are designed to blow you away, to knock your socks off, so that you would understand God's Son has the power. He has the power to do whatever his father wants. And he has more power than any human has ever had. More power than any interest group in Washington, D.C. He has more power than any new scientific discovery that we have made. More power than any government. More power than any dictator could ever dream of possessing. And yet it is a power that has to match with it compassion. What do I mean by that? You look at people who use their power without compassion and the result can be atrocities. You look at people with compassion but no power and it's just sentiment. There's no results. They're just sentimental. Jesus lives with power and compassion and friends, he's full of both. And so we take note because we wonder, Jesus, are you able to do what your father wants? In other words, can you do what your father wants? And then we also ask, Do you care about us? Can you and do you care? We're in a passage this morning that uh, looks at many details of a major miracle. And and because there's so many details, it lets us know that the author was probably either talking to an eyewitness or was an eyewitness himself. And it shows how complete is the power of the Son of God, this Jesus of Nazareth. I'm in Mark chapter 4. And it's called The Calming of the Storm. But as I read it, uh, understand that the details are written for uh, there. So you can both imagine what is going on and have a bigger picture of what this miracle is all about. But also to, to point to its authenticity. And it says this, Mark chapter 4, verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples... Let's go over to the other side, meaning the Sea of Galilee. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped, and Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Really? The disciples woke him. And they said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Wow. I call this passage the three rebukes. But in it, understand that every little detail that is given meant me is there to heighten the drama of what Jesus is about to do. We, here are some of the details. It is nighttime, and we understand that on the Sea of Galilee, fishermen fish during the evening because the sea is calmer in the evening but Jesus makes his sail in the evening and so they are sailing at night we also know that there are other boats with them and so those boats sailing at night uh, are sailing then because Jesus has just dismissed a crowd of people who probably sat with him all day to hear him teach And as he dismisses the crowd, then he sails to the other side so he can have some seclusion and time with his disciples. And the final little detail is that Jesus falls asleep. It says on a cushion for his head. And these sailors and fishermen then hit an unexpected, untimely uh, storm because it's evening when the lake is supposed to be calmer and the waves are filling the boat uh, so deep that the sailors fear that it might sink. This last week, uh, these, you know, we had a hailstorm down, uh, down at our local mall and it, it closed the mall because it broke all the skylights. It, fishermen know what to do when a, when a storm comes up. Retailers do not. More than that, Fishermen know what to do because they've been through several serious storms during the daytime. They know exactly what they should do, and I'm sure they are doing it. Some of you said, oh, hail's coming down. My car's in the parking lot. I saw one of your cars. And you said, I ought to get it out of the hail. And by the time that connected, because this doesn't happen very often, by the time it connected, your car was ruined. Well, luckily, we have insurance There was no such thing as insurance for these disciples. And they feared for their lives. And they didn't say, well, at least my wife will get $250,000 in a life insurance policy. No, they were fearing for their livelihoods and fearing for their lives. So at the end of that, I mean, as that violent storm hits uh, and these people are afraid, we see three rebukes and the first is a dangerous one. You see, the disciples... Go to Jesus and they rebuke Jesus. May I strongly suggest you don't do that very often. Because the chances are he will prove you wrong. So they go to him and they rebuke him and they give these wonderful words. And by the way, these words are repeated by by every human generation. It's a question posed generation after generation. And here it is. Do you care about us? Do you care about humanity? And more personal, do you care about me? Here are their words. Teacher, don't you care? Rhetorical question. It doesn't look like you care is what they're saying if we drown. So uh, they are perplexed. And, and, and you know, they bail while Jesus sleeps. Fear is controlling their souls in a pillow is helping Jesus stay asleep. Do you see the difference between what they are experiencing and what Jesus is experiencing? Now, I cannot prove this, and it's not here in Scripture, but I've always wondered if Jesus was sleeping on the cushion like this, just waiting to see what would happen. Just waiting for the opportunity to say, Here's another great lesson I can be teaching these men. I, but I've got to get them to the point of despair, the point of such fear. So, as they rebuke Jesus, then Jesus stands and he rebukes nature. Now, understand what, probably what they were doing is they were shrieking him and rousing him and saying, Jesus, don't you care? Now, Jesus stands and he speaks to nature, he speaks to the elements, and he only blurts out two simple words. In Greek they are siopa, pefissimo. Now, I, you know, I ask you in this sort of who-wants-to-be-a-millionaire question with no lifelines. if. They were asking, Jesus, don't you care? And suddenly they see that there's no wind and the lake that was filling the boat has turned to glass. Which would you be more afraid of? The words that Jesus uses in English are hush, Be muzzled, be muzzled. In other words, (laughs) he's saying, be quiet to the wind, be still to the sea. And the way I understand this passage is written, Jesus does not shout it, he does not wave his arms or do any special incantations or a stop the wind dance. You see, this whole issue is underacted by Jesus. He is not a drama king in a drama. But he simply speaks conversationally with his voice, and nature immediately obeys. Have you ever gone from the fear of nature to the fear of God in one moment? And you ever ask the question, Who, who or what do I fear most? I think I would fear God. I've lived through earthquakes. I've held on to a head when the whole shower is shaking away. I've seen the shower be, 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 be underneath me crack and, 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 I, and I remember my prayers during that, that earthquake. But what would happen if the earthquake suddenly stopped because I said, Lord Jesus, stop this. Whoa. <laughs> the third rebuke. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says calmly to them after commanding nature. He speaks to them, probably just as calmly in this third rebuke. And he goes back to the 12 and he says, why are you uh, you so afraid? Do you still have no uh, faith? And I often reflect on this truth. I have enough faith to turn to Jesus so he can save me. I do not have enough faith to believe that he can lead my life better than I can. I believe he can save me, forgive me for my sins. But when it comes to following him in faith, my faith is not so much. For a lot of my life, last five decades really, I've had the privilege of talking to people about God. And I realize that people have a lot of questions about God, but they also have a lot of questions for God. The questions about God are what I call the philosophical ones. They ask, how did the universe come into being? If God is so, so powerful, can he create a stone that he can't uh, lift? You know, stupid questions like that. Then there's you know, some of the other philosophical questions. Why is there suffering in this life? And, and God, if you have all the power and you are good, why, don't you, why, why haven't you ever put an end to evil? You see, those are questions to logic. And people ask them to stump the theologian. And, and I want to say that they've often stumped me, so much so that I have uh, studied the answers to these questions, so I don't look at them and go, I don't know. I've read books and books and books on these, and I've memorized the answers. I can win the argument. It's just that behind these philosophical questions are really what I call experiential, uh, existential questions that are coming more from the heart. The experiential questions are, I've been through this and I didn't see God. Among those is, why does my boss steal my ideas and take credit for them and never even thank me? Why is my neighbor's newborn daughter born with a congenital heart deformity? Why did my identity get stolen? And I'm going through all this red tape. How come my brother-in-law can cheat on his taxes and never get caught? Well, I get audited every five years. Or how about this one? Experiential. Why did I get cancer? And there's even a level that if we're honest with ourselves, that we say, Jesus, don't you care? That I call beyond experiential Beyond existential, I call them visceral. These are questions, God, that go even deeper. Let me hear, let me share with you a few that I've heard over my lifetime. God, why can't I live long enough to walk my daughter down the aisle on her wedding day? God, how could a lifetime of retirement savings disappear overnight? Why am I the only survivor of this car crash? Was I born this way, or are my sexual leanings a choice? Will my dad ever say he's proud of me? Am I stupid, or is algebra hard? Why don't I have any friends at school? Do you understand that those go deeper? They are truly visceral. That is the question that they are asking. Don't you care? And understand that as we look at this Gospel of Mark, we we compare the the deity and the magnificence of Jesus Christ, but still in human flesh, and we compare it with, with our own humanity. And he was fully human and fully God, a mystery that we cannot uh, really uh, play out in, in, in easy words. But when we compare ourselves with him, we're doing anthropology because we see that mankind, humanity, is different than the deity of Jesus. And our anthropology is always asking God, first of all, does he exist? But secondly, we're saying, does he care about us? And we have to understand that that is especially true for Christians whose lives are at risk just because of their faith in Christ. That first band of believers in Jerusalem, after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ and, and, and the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, that, that first band of, of, of believers and followers of Jesus, they are threatened, they are jailed, they are beaten, and they are persecuted for their faith in Christ. Within the first few years, Stephen is stoned and James is executed. Could God have spared them? Does God care? But the faith of Jesus spreads even further till it's all around the Mediterranean, which is within just a few decades. So we come a little later in the 60s ADs, And under Nero, just 30 years after the resurrection of of Jesus, their faith has spread to Rome. And Nero blames the destructive fire that, that decimated Rome. He blames it on them when really what he was trying to do is some Roman redevelopment. He throws some to the lions and he makes others living human torches. Could God have saved them and killed Nero instead? Does God care? About 90 years after Nero, Bishop Polycarp of Smyrna, which is now called Turkey, uh, is told that he would be allowed to live if he denounces his faith in Jesus Christ. You see this picture? Uh, Let let me read the quote. Make sure you leave this picture up and see what's wrong with this picture because there's a little humor here. Here's his answer. And this is recorded in, in Fox's Book of Martyrs. His answer is, "Denounce Christ or die." His answer is, "Eighty in six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong." How then can I blaspheme my king? Blaspheme my king, who has saved me?" What an answer. Can I also say, "What a body at 86. <laughs> you see that? I'm 69, and I'm not getting there. <laughs> I, I just, uh, yeah, anyway, uh, that's, that's Christian art. That's ancient art, okay? We, we don't worry about the little things. Uh, uh, anyway, I love that. Uh, <clears throat> but you could say about Polycarp, couldn't you have warned him like you warned Paul several times so he had to escape? Couldn't you have warned Polycarp so that maybe he could escape? Does God care for even his most famous and choice believers? A couple of years ago, I was told by someone about an icon that has been used to depict the church of Jesus Christ in the first four centuries of the church of Jesus Christ. And I had never heard of it before, and studying this passage, I realized that this passage was connected to that icon. You see... We know of the ancient uh, uh, ichthus, the fish, and, and, and ichthus stands—it's a acrostic stands for uh, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. This drawing uh, comes from a ship that is on the sea that we are studying today, and it is the ship that has been depicting Jesus, uh, Jesus Church. The idea is the church is frail and near sinking in a storm-ravaged sea. And Christians would draw this, especially on the, on the sand and the seashore, to depict who they were and, 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 and what they were experiencing. And, and so as they, as they draw this picture, what they are saying is, I am in this boat and Jesus is in this boat. His church, it is afloat. And it will remain afloat. More than that, it is floating and it is thriving and will do so until he returns. His church does more than stay afloat and more than thrive. It surges. And yet everywhere where Christianity spreads, it suffers. Governments and established religions do not want the risen Christ to bring his kingdom into their kingdoms. And right now, there's two main persecution points for the church of Jesus Christ, where they're wondering, Jesus, don't you care? The first is where radical Islam is meeting with Christianity. And the second is dealing with dictatorial atheism. And where dictatorial atheism says there is no God, it intersects with the risen Christ. On February 15th, 2015, 20 Egyptian Christians who were just uh, guest workers in Libya are led out to a beach there in that country where they are beheaded by ISIS soldiers. They've been made an offer to convert to Islam but live as slaves, and they decided not to. The 21st prisoner is a native of Chad, and they make him the same offer. But before he is executed, he blurts out these words, their God is my God. All 21 martyrs share a couple things in common. The first is all of them have a faith in Jesus Christ. And it is a faith that they are not willing to give up, no matter what the cost And of course, all of them have a grieving family and probably a mother who is not prepared for their sons to die before mother dies. The Egyptian Christians who have watched this video have said time and time again that they can see lips moving uh, on these martyrs just before they are executed And as they try to look at what they are saying, they say time and time again, what they see the lips saying without any sounds is Lord Jesus Christ, just before they were executed. And the video has done more to damage radical Islam and brought more glory to Jesus than we will ever know in this life. But all 21 are martyred. We know Jesus has the power. But does he care for his followers who suffer for their faith? You have to take your anthropology and as you study who Jesus is in the gospel of Mark, as we go through it week by week, you have to mix that with the Christology and you understand the same question that was being asked of Jesus because... After this event was over, look what happens. It says that he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And then the disciples, it said they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Who is this that even in the winds obey him? Who is this? Who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. We still suffer. And our anthropology asks, don't you care that we are perishing? And we would all, of course, prefer, prefer a faith that results in a pain-free life because God is not just our, our blesser, but God is our, sort of our magic carpet ride. And this time, in this boat, and in this storm, Jesus saves his disciples. And the eyewitnesses are filled with awe And of the 11 disciples who witnessed the risen Christ, 10 of them will die for their faith, and one would die much later in exile. But we ask the same question as on that boat that night. We're asking the same question 2,000 years later that these disciples asked on a calm sea. Who is this? They experience power over nature. He proves he has power and compassion for them. And he also has power for a persecuted church. Now let's really do the visceral part. And he has power and compassion for perplexed Christians who see life circumstances go against them. But he may not work in the ways that you would prefer. You may suffer. You may feel pain. You may not get justice in this life. But your Christology still needs to ask and answer this question. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? This Jesus of Nazareth, God's only son, sent to us, risen from the dead, returning to make all things right. The same Jesus on whom legions of angels could come down and save him from his cross is the one who has compassion for you, understanding that though legions of angels are available for your situation, they didn't come down on Jesus and they probably won't come down on you. But God is at work and Jesus is working now in his own way. And he will use that power and compassion along with justice as he returns. And that little ship that we were looking at in the drawing will make the QE2, the Queen Elizabeth look like a tiny boat that you put in your bathtub with your kids in comparison to what God will do for his church. Let's pray. Father, we know it's Mother's Day and we thank you so much for mothers as that video proclaimed, sacrifice so much, and do it with such joy. We thank you and we honor them this morning, and especially those mothers who follow Jesus, which means they are praying continually for the faith and welfare of their children. We ask you to honor their prayers. And you are full of power and compassion and long to answer those prayers. We pray this morning for the persecuted church. We say, ouch, sometimes, because we don't have the freedom of religion that we believe we should have. But Father, in many parts of the world, lives are at risk for those who claim to follow Jesus. We do not understand why someone as powerful and as compassionate allows martyrdom, but we do know that the boat floats and thrives and surges. And throughout the ages Christians have outloved and outsacrificed and out by sheer will proclaimed you no matter what the cost. And we pray for that persecuted church today. But Father, that works not just for the church but for each life here today. We pray for the Christian who's just not seeing life work. Who wants both compassion and power. May they be smiling within days, watching you break through. Maybe not in the way that they were hoping or dreaming, but in a way that they have to nod their heads and say, only God could do this. From others, for church, for perplexed, discouraged Christians, you are full of power and compassion. Lord Jesus, show both. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.